0: Let us pray. God, we do give you praise as the one who has given us all that we have, as the one, Lord, in whom our identity is found. May we be about your work, that you might be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Well, sisters and brothers, I don't know if you were able to be here last night, but we had a great night last night at the Daddy-Daughter Dance. You can see a few of the pictures here. It was a packed house, uh, lots of dancing, uh, some characters, some food. Uh, fellowship. It was just a great opportunity to uh, invite, as we talked about last week, come and see and to experience the the joy of being here uh, at this church. And so, I want to thank all of you. It takes a lot of people to pull off the Daddy-Daughter dance. So thank you to each of you who, uh, who participated and who led and who came and who danced. Uh, and so if you know somebody who was a part of that leadership team, please give them uh, our gratitude for the great job that they did. And uh, if you were a father and you're here, and uh, uh, hopefully you didn't pull any hamstrings or anything and you're doing okay, um, it was good. You know, I spend the whole night just counting uh, my four daughters one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, just to make sure um, uh, that they don't run away with somebody. So uh, it's, uh, but it was a great night. So, all right, well, we are continuing in our look at the Gospel of John. We started a couple weeks ago, and we're going to be looking at that all the way through May or June. and So it's a great gospel, as we've talked about before. It's one of the gospels that we don't spend quite as much time on, really, as what is called the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so John's just a little bit different, and we'll continue to see that this morning. And so today we're looking at the gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So I invite you to hear these words from John. John writes this, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us even now as we celebrate your work and we pray lord that you would help us to understand you even more deeply so that we might grow and help others to experience your love grace and abundance and i pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight O lord our strength and our redeemer Amen and amen. So, you know, before we kind of begin, it's important to remember we're still towards the very start of the Gospel of John. And like any good author, uh, they're going to try to lay down a foundation of what they want you to know at the very beginning. And so... What you want to begin to ask as you are reading John, again, especially here towards the start of it, is what is John trying to tell us about who Jesus is and what difference that makes in our lives today? Sometimes in a story like this, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get distracted by the wedding feast or by the the, the, uh, conversation between Jesus and his mother or the miracle of water being turned into wine. And it's good for us to pay attention to those things, but it's even more important for us to ask, what is John saying about who Jesus is through these particular words? So that's how we want to be able to kind of look at this passage today. And one of the things that we talked about two weeks ago as we kicked off John, one of the things that makes him a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke is the fact that he has, it's full of symbolism. And oftentimes John is speaking on two or three different levels, not just one. So, for instance, how does our passage begin? It says, on the third day. Now, what exactly does on the third day mean? Well, it could mean on the third day. I spent all week, and that's what I've come up with. But it also, of course, could mean on the third day as a way of remembering what happened on the third day. And what happened, if I just say what happened on the third day of Jesus' life, you would say, many of you, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. So John didn't necessarily need to say on the third day, he could have just said there was a wedding feast, but he does. And so there's this sense of, is what John also trying to tell us is, remember, for those who know the story already, remember what happens on the third day when Jesus is raised from the dead, when he has overcome sin and brokenness and grief and sorrow and death itself so that when we read this story we don't disconnect it from what's coming but rather we read it knowing that those things are woven into this story. This is the coming kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing now is beginning to help us to understand that. On the third day There was a wedding feast to which Jesus was invited. I think it's important for us just to kind of be cognizant of the fact that Jesus was invited to a wedding party. It's so very easy for us to focus on the divinity of Jesus Christ that we forget about his humanity. And here was Jesus and his group of followers, and they got invited to a party, to a wedding. And it's just good for us to know Jesus is someone you can invite to your your party, right? I think we've talked about before about how usually people don't want to invite pastors to their parties uh, or that the party really gets started as soon as the pastor leaves. I get that. So I usually leave about 30 minutes after I've arrived. And so people are like, thank God, now we can celebrate, right? And so, but Jesus is the one you can invite to the party. But now here's the thing. It was quite the party. I mean, this was a big Feast. Weddings were a big deal. Now, you probably know that here in America, the average cost of a wedding is up close to $35,000, right? And as someone who has four daughters, That quickly adds up to $140,000. As I think about that, I thought, I may have to apply for a new church where I can be be both the senior pastor and the associate pastor at the same time so that I can get two different paychecks. That seems genius, doesn't it? I'm not applying for those jobs. I'm just getting rid of Scott. So here's the—I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. He's not here. I'll say it again at 1030 when he's in here. Um. But that's a lot of money, right? And it's a big deal. And so we think, oh, weddings are such big deals here in America now. But here's the thing. It still pales in comparison to how big of a deal weddings were in Jesus' time. These were massive events. Oftentimes they were a week-long party for a wedding. Gary Birds goes on to talk about the fact that these were huge for the whole village, these particular events. In fact, oftentimes they would kind of mark the year ahead was by these kind of wedding feasts. It was the highlight oftentimes for a village. And so this was a really big deal, which means, of course, that if you were to run out of something like, for instance, wine, that this would be no small faux pas. This would be a really big deal. This would bring shame in a shame-based society that would last not just a day or so, but perhaps for the whole family for weeks, months, maybe even years. And so it's for good reason then that Mary kind of saddles up next to her son, Jesus, and says, perhaps whispering, who knows, uh, they're running out Which brings us, of course, to an incredibly awkward conversation where Jesus says to her, Woman, what interest is that to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, my mother made a surprise visit this past Friday evening to our house, and um, I considered saying to her at some point, woman, <laughs> just to see what might happen. But quite frankly, I already knew what would happen, and so I didn't say that. But the truth is, we should be wise to know that it's probably not quite as abrasive as it may sound to our American If you go actually to John 19, you will see, you may remember this story, Jesus is up on the cross and he looks out and he sees his mother, Mary, and what John uh, coins the beloved disciple. And he looks at Mary and he says, woman, this is your son. And to the disciple, this is your mother. In other words, he was wanting to make sure that his mother was taken care of. So I don't think it sounds quite like it does to us when Jesus says woman. That said, there was also more gentle words that he could have used. And so I do think that there is this sense that Jesus is beginning to separate himself, almost like an adolescent boy might do to his mother, where he is trying to say, while I still may be the son of Mary, I need to begin to understand more deeply, and I need to help others understand what it means to also be the son of Of God. And so he's beginning to move into here at the beginning of his ministry to morph into understanding and not just understanding, but then beginning to help others to see who he is as the Messiah. Now he goes on to say, uh, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, again, it's all over the place. It could mean that his ministry hasn't yet come, his time for that. Maybe that's what he means. Uh, But reality is oftentimes when he says, my hour has not yet come, uh, he says this throughout John. He's usually talking about his death. And so again, John wants us to be cognizant of this, of the fact that here, even at the beginning, that Jesus sees where this is going, that his death for our brokenness and sin, even then, that Jesus is mindful of. Now, one of, I don't know exactly how to take Mary here. Uh, I think it's a great line because she is clearly nonplussed. By him having called her woman, right? Because what is she, you almost get a sense that she just kind of rolls her eyes as if it's not the first time that she's heard this. Because she then turns to the servants and just says, all right, sure, do whatever he tells you. And this is exactly what happens, right? And so they do. So Jesus is like, all right, you see those six jars over there? Fill them up with water. Now here again, remembering the symbolism, people say, ooh, only six jars. You realize, of course, that the perfect number for completion is how many? is seven. So there's one short. So is what John trying to also say to us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. Of what things? Well, these jars are for purification, right? Waters for purification rights of the Jewish people. And so could it be. The fact that what, Jesus, what John's also helping us to see is that Jesus is going to ultimately be the one at his death and his resurrection who helps to purify us, who helps to bring wholeness and completion. Perhaps we don't know for sure, but this is just kind of how you have to read John. It's, it's this multi-layered tier. All that said, there is one thing that we certainly do know, which is that this is a lot of wine. 150 gallons, give or take, of wine. That's a lot of wine, am I right? Right? apparently I haven't been to some of your cellars, but this feels like a lot of wine to me, at least. And not only was it a lot of wine, but as the the banquet master, the master of the banquet makes it clear, Jesus seems to have married, if you will, the quantity with the quality. This was no boxed wine. This was legit stuff here. Because sure enough, as the master of the banquet, you heard the story as he tasted. He says, wow, usually people use the, their worst wine at the end when nobody cares. They just want to have a drink, but not here. This is amazing. Now, the master of the banquet didn't even know what had happened. Neither did the bride or the groom Or, it seems, most of the wedding party. They were oblivious. Let's hear this. They were oblivious to how Jesus was at work in their very midst. But not all were oblivious. We're told that the servants and the disciples... They knew. In fact, John tells us the disciples believed in who Jesus was, which is great, but it's also a little odd because, as you may recall in the very last chapter, we are told that the disciples believed. So, why is John telling us that again? Well, perhaps it's simply to remind us of this fact that faith is not something that happens one time oh I now believe and it's static and done faith is ongoing you are continually learning continually growing you will go through times with your faith in Jesus just as you might with a spouse or a friend where there are times in the relationship when things are not going as well when you're wrestling when you feel dry and that's okay because of this fact that we know that we always have room to grow, always have room to believe more. Now there's one last thing I want you to see here as we recap this story, and that's how John describes miracles. Did you notice what he says? He says that it was a sign. And that's really important for us to keep in mind. He will continue to call them signs because it's a reflection of the fact that what John wants us to know is that the miracle is not the end in itself. In fact, the miracle is all about pointing to who Jesus was as God. Someone has said that it's easy for miracles, oftentimes for us, uh, to, to, to make it a bit like a menu where you get so focused on the menu that you forget that it's actually just trying to point you to this incredible entree that's sitting right there on your table. You never want to get so distracted by the menu, AKA the miracle, that you forget the thing to which it is pointing. Which is Jesus as God. So, this is one of those remarkable. Stories. I remember the story as a child, especially because of the fact that growing up in a family of mostly teetotalers, it was always interesting to hear them talk about how Jesus turned water into wine. It was a little bit of maneuvering to make that okay. Uh, I don't think we necessarily need to do that in here, but uh, if you guys want to know more about that aspect of the story, you can certainly talk to Scott about it. And so, but what... What I was asking about is what does this story, it's a great story, but what does it have to say to us today? And I think it actually has a lot to say to us today. In fact, I think it has so much to say to us that you should have seen the length of my original sermon. It was incredible. But it would have taken us until about noon for me to finally finish it. But that's because there were so many great things in this passage. Uh, you know, I could have talked about the fact that, uh, that, that Jesus clearly cares about the little things as well as the big things. Think about this particular miracle. It wasn't about a blind man who could now see. It wasn't about a leper who was now healed. It wasn't, certainly wasn't about a dead person who was raised, as we see with Lazarus. No, this is about somebody who was going to be super embarrassed and shamed. And so Jesus turned water into wine. And so we need to remember that Jesus is an incredibly miraculous Jesus, but he also cares about every part of your life. We could have talked about the fact that, well, how interesting it is that the very first sign, miracle, happens at a wedding feast. And and what does this say to us? And if you go to John 3, uh, you'll see that John the Baptist says that Jesus is the groom and that his followers are the bride. Or if you go to another book that John wrote in the book of Revelation, at the very end, it says the lamb will come down, the lamb, a.k.a. Jesus, as the groom, and the church is the bride. And so the fact that what this is doing is helping us from the very beginning to see how passionate, how much Jesus loves us, how committed he is to us through these vows, through almost like a covenant between a groom and a bride. That is his love and his commitment to his people. We could have talked about that. We could, and I really wanted to go back to this again, talked about just how oblivious we often are to the ways in which God is at work. Remember, hardly any of the people at the wedding seem to notice. And as someone has suggested, if you think about this miracle, it's actually true in many senses, but one of them also being the fact that this actually happens with some regularity, that water does almost always. It can turn into wine. Wine is made up of water. Are we familiar with that? And grapes, and how do grapes grow? They have water. And how many people, how many of us on the day-to-day things, how many of us are oblivious to being thankful for all that God does in all of these different ways? But I decided because of the fact that two weeks ago you guys got texts every day that asked the question, what are you looking for, that I would kind of omit that for the day. And so I just want to talk about one thing. Was that a clap that I heard? Okay, I want to talk about one thing. And that is the abundance, the ridiculous abundance of Jesus Christ in this story. Did you notice that Jesus did not give the minimum, the absolute least that he could. Jesus did not take out his abacus in this story and say, "Okay, let's kind of go through this. Okay, you look like you're going to drink this portion. You're going to drink maybe just a little bit less. You may drink a little bit more. You're going to drink a little bit. Okay. All right, here's what we need, servants. I need 2 and a quarter jars full." Jesus didn't do that, did he? No, no, no. Jesus looked at those bountiful amount of jars and he says, "I want you to drink all of that. He didn't try to figure out how can I make sure that the very last drop of wine equates with when that last person is fully sated and there is no more thirst. No, no, no. Jesus said, this is a party we are going to celebrate. And they filled up 150 gallons worth of wine. You know, of course, this is not the only time that Jesus does this. Jesus does this in the sixth chapter of John with the feeding of the 5,000. Five loaves, two fish. And do you remember that Jesus didn't say, okay, well, let's figure out how the very last morsel of bread is going to feed that very last person. No, there are how many baskets full? 12 baskets full that are left Over. Listen to me. It's not that Jesus was perfect in every way, except he was a bad counter and bad estimator of how much food or drink he was going to need. Right? That wasn't his one imperfection. It was that he did everything with a bountiful amount. He did everything with abundance. He wanted people to know. There's not just, oh, this is just the right portion of love for you. Just this much forgiveness, that's all you get. That should satisfy. All right, there's just this amount of generosity. And then that's enough. Jesus said, no, I'm going to keep pouring, keep flowing. This is going to be over and above anything you could ever have imagined. But here's the thing. And I think this is something that we may oftentimes look past, which is that Jesus wanted to make sure, John wants to make sure that they aren't just telling us that Jesus is abundant and, and generous and, and graceful and loving and forgiving. No, no, He wants to show us. He wants us to, please hear me, he wants us to feel it. He wants us to experience it. Carolyn Lewis says, throughout the Gospel of John, we aren't just told about grace. We are shown grace. We taste Grace, we eat grace, we feel grace, we smell grace, all of those things. In other words, what we have to understand is that grace, love, the generosity of, of, of Jesus, you know what it's like? It's like a party where the wine has stopped flowing, the band has stopped Playing. The dancers have stopped dancing. The bride and the groom are looking around at everyone in an incredibly awkward way, thinking this is a nightmare. And all of a sudden, you begin to hear a hundred and fifty gallons of wine or beer. Beer or Perrier. I care not what it is, but it's just being rolled in so that all of a sudden the music starts playing, the wine starts flowing, the dancers start dancing, and the bride and the groom start celebrating what an incredible day it is. John says this. This is what grace is like. This is the generosity of God. Can you taste it? There's a reason why scripture says taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a bit like describing someone who said honey. I could describe honey for you. I could tell you everything about honey. But you can rest assured until you taste it. Only when you taste it will you say, oh, now I get honey. And see, what I think the church far too often has forgotten is that our role is not simply to tell people about love and grace and abundance and generosity. Please hear me, especially in this day and age when words are a dime a dozen. Our role as the church is to help others to feel and to experience What grace tastes like, what generosity feels like, what it smells like. This is a part of the role of the church. I'm reticent to share this because I have a feeling my concern is that people will think what I'm trying to do here is point to the decks. And so please hear me. Uh, uh, if you already like me and trust me, you will know that's not what I'm trying to do. If you don't like me and don't trust me, this will just confirm what you've always thought about me. And so. But, but we just had our Inquirer's Weekend. And you guys know this. We talk about the Inquirer's Weekend, right? This is when we want people to understand who ZPC is. What do we believe about Jesus? And, and so there's always these surveys. We always do these surveys afterwards. What did you like? What, what, you know, what was most meaningful? How can we get better? All those sorts of things. I asked an independent person this question earlier, uh, or this past week. I said, because I thought this was true, but I wanted to make sure. What would you say typically is like, you know, as they talk about the highlights, what's the, what's the most common theme? You know what the most common theme was, what, what people tend to like the most is the friday night dinner when they come over to our house now I, I want you to know i don't think that has anything to do with 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 the decks it has nothing to do with this was not my idea i stole this idea from a pastor friend of mine i want you to know i could talk to you about the house and the dog with the horrible breath i could talk to you about all those sorts of things but here's what i want you to know you know why i think that's the case It's because of the fact that people like Misty Soderstrom and others have helped to cook food. It's because of the fact that they are invited to come in. Everyone, hear me, everyone wants to be invited to a party. It's because the food is free. Everyone likes free food. It's because as much as possible, we try to clean up after them so that they don't even have to get up out of their seats. It's because of the fact that we just get to sit around tables and talk and get to know people. You see, and this is why it's so important, because here's the thing. I am convinced that no one can understand ZPC or Jesus if they do not explain experience those things. And if all we did was have them come in and just say, well, this is what we think, and this is what we believe, and this is what we try to do, all those things are good and right. But if they are not aligned with an actual experience of those things, then it will fall on deaf ears. Remember, the people at the party, they experienced Jesus even if they didn't yet understand who he was. And see, we do this in various and sundry ways and it is critical for us to do so. We do it, we have awakening coming up next weekend for the girls. One of the things that happens is they hear talks about the grace, the love, the forgiveness, the abundance the generosity of Jesus and those are all good and right. Please hear me, I think those are important. But what we can't overlook is that a part of what makes it so significant is that people are serving them. They are giving them food. They are caring for them. They're cleaning up after them. They're cleaning the bathrooms for them. Those things, they may not even be conscious of it, but those things are speaking volumes about who Jesus is is you cannot just tell people you have to help them experience it. It's why the all church brunch is one of my is always my favorite Sunday. I will always try to preach a shorter sermon on the all church brunch Sundays because then we get to go and eat and drink and celebrate together. If people do not experience Jesus, in a tangible way, if they cannot feel the grace and the love and the abundance and the generosity of Jesus, then more often than not, they will never grow to understand it. Now, I'm going to use that as a way to quickly say one thing about our upcoming building. The proposal that we're going to make. As I said last Sunday, we're going to make this in the next couple of months to you guys. And my hope, quite frankly, is that by the time we actually get there, 99% of you will already pretty much know 99% of what it is that we're doing. I don't want to come up here. I don't want our leadership team to come up here and we show you, hey, this is what we're talking about. And you guys be like, whoa, I had no idea. I want you to know. And I want you to know that there are several things that we're talking about doing, that we're proposing doing, that's going to make all The logical sense to you in all of the world. Uh, One of those things is we're going to rearrange the building so that it's more secure. And when you see that, many of you will be like, hmm, that makes sense. I I always think logical people have lower tones for some reason. Or or when we talk about the fact that, you know what, what we're going to do, one of the things that we're going to do is rearrange the building in such a way that we actually have access to classrooms and all those things without having to go through all the different security doors and do all those kinds of things. And some of you are going to be like, hmm, finally, that's perfect. There will be other changes such as uh, uh, rearranging uh, or putting all of our children's area, our youth area, expanding some of that and trying to get it all in one area so it's not so confusing when people come in and they don't know where to go. And and, and many of you are going to be like, no, that's good. That's good stuff. Ah, but there is a different area. And I already know it's going to be the area that's going to give many of you trouble. Which is why I want to start talking about it now. Because I want you to wrestle with it. And that is the area of how our building makes people feel. Now, I know for many of the left-brained folks that we have that that sense of aesthetic or feel doesn't seem nearly as important as the pragmatic things that we will propose. But I want to suggest it makes it no less important. Because one of the things that we have to understand Is that when people come into this particular building, I want them, without a word being said, without a sign that they can read, I want them to begin immediately beginning to understand Jesus by how it makes them I want it to be to look in such a way that it feels like this is, wow, there's some kind of generosity going on here. I want them to look and see the abundance of the place. I want them to look and say this is clearly a place where people care about relationships because look at all the different places where they can sit. Clearly people want to hang out. I want them to walk in and say this is beautiful. I wonder if God might be beautiful as well. I want them to walk in and immediately begin to understand who God God is, simply because they begin to feel that there is something different about this place. I have told you this research so many times, and I'm going to tell it again, that with most visitors know within the first seven minutes whether they are going to come back or not. You know what that isn't? It isn't a thought. It is a feeling. Is this a place where I want to? To be Is this a place where I am clearly valued? Is this a place that makes me think, wow, it's so beautiful. I want to stay here. Is this a place that speaks to generosity and to abundance? And I want you to know, especially our word-based, worship-based people, here's what I want to tell you. If they walk through that place and they don't feel that, it matters not what I say or what we sing up here. They are already not listening. But if our building, by simply walking in, already begins to speak to the abundance and the generosity and the love and the grace and the beauty of God, then what we do here just simply builds off of that feeling of that foundation. My hope is that you will begin to pray about that. But that doesn't mean that we have no sense of action today. What I want you to think about this week is what might you do to help people not just intellectually understand grace, love, abundance, generosity, but what might you do to help people feel and experience it? Maybe it's giving them a bottle of wine that says, taste and see that the Lord is good, attached to it, and just giving it to them. Maybe it's taking out a child of yours and, and, and to coffee or to hot chocolate and just creating space so that they know that they are important. Maybe it's writing a letter or a note that you then send out to them just saying, hey, I was thinking of you. Maybe it's sending out flowers to someone, you know, not for Valentine's Day, uh, but, but just for no reason at all. You all are creative. You can come up with your own ideas, but it is simply this way of trying to help people experience love or grace. Now you may be saying, well, that doesn't seem very Jesus-y. I mean, there's nothing really Christian about that. That's just being nice. Maybe. But here's the thing. It doesn't really seem all that Jesus-y to me that Jesus would turn 150 gallons of water into wine. But if Jesus did it, then it's probably Jesus-y. Will there be some, like those at the wedding, who have no idea and who are clueless? Absolutely. But do you notice that Jesus didn't stop doing those things just because some people didn't notice? And I have a sneaking suspicion. I can't prove it yet, but someday I think I will. That if there are enough, if there are enough people who are in their way that they live, are helping others to experience and feel the grace and love of Jesus, the generosity and abundance of Jesus, if there are enough people who are doing that, that there will be those who begin to wonder, why do I always feel like this when I'm around those people? What might it be if each of us asked the question, how can we help others Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would help us not just to know of your love and your generosity and your abundance. And not just to tell people of it. But to actually experience it they might know beyond the shadow of a doubt who you are. And may that change them forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?